Hey, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Hope. There is a lot that I love about that story. Did you hear what time it takes place? Three o'clock in the morning. Of course, it's three o'clock in the morning, right? I mean, Waffle House is open 24-7. They could probably be open from, what, 11 p.m. till 5 in the morning and get the same amount of business. Then he sees the employee is asleep, and he decides, I'll just let him sleep. Clearly, they're tired and need some rest. I'll go back to the kitchen and make it for myself. And posting selfies of that on his social media, he comes back the next day and pays for it. So uh, at least he got that far down. I especially like Waffle House's response to this whole thing. Pat Warner, director of PR and external affairs for Waffle House says, <laughs> we feel our customers receive a better experience when we actually cook and serve the meals. Don't you think so? It's great. They apologized and invited him back. We'll do the cooking this time, they said. I, I think sometimes it can be helpful. Sometimes maybe it's a little dangerous to uh, uh, build bridges between the business world and church world, but I'm going to try to build a bridge off of this to uh, church world. I was talking to a friend recently. Now, she said her daughter got invited to go to church with one of her daughter's friends, and so the daughter said, sure, let's go. They, they went to church, and that particular uh, Sunday morning, it was a communion Sunday. So as they entered the church, they were asked by someone, a greeter, I don't know, would you be willing to help us serve communion later in the service? Uh, they asked this friend who was visiting for the very first time, could you help serve communion? And she was a little taken aback by it, no training, no instructions, but she said, sure, I guess, happy to help out. When it was time in the service for communion, they invited the communion servers to stand up and come forward. And my friend's daughter, this first-time visitor, was the only one who stood up and came forward. And, and they made it through the service. Somehow they, they figured out how to do it. But I was thinking, you know, if, if there was a director of PR and external affairs for the church, I wonder if they might say something similar to what Waffle House said. We feel visitors to church receive a better experience when the church actually serves them, right? And so, um, you know, if you've been around the church for a while, if you've bought into the mission and vision and values of a place, if maybe you've even had some training so you have at least a little bit of an idea what you are doing, if teams of people, staff and volunteers, are excited about serving together and meeting the needs of the next person that comes through the doors of this place, really exciting and, and powerful things can happen. We're excited today. It's rally weekend. Hopefully you saw the ministry fair uh, booths out there as you were walking in. Uh, all, all rally weekend means is there are new classes and programs and groups for people of all ages kind of kicking off uh, today and throughout the course of the next week. The, the staff here has been planning and praying and uh, strategizing for months trying to uh, figure out what this fall is going to look like. We're, we're super excited about it. But none of the planning and none of the strategy would make a difference if it wasn't for so many of you who, who serve on ministry teams in so many areas. So thank you uh, for your service. And, and we're going to be talking a little bit today about why that matters so much, why, why that is so important. Uh, serving is one of those things, whether it's serving at a church or wherever it might be that you are serving. Sometimes it feels like in the day-to-day -day kind of grind of a, a life of service, it doesn't necessarily feel like you are accomplishing a whole lot. You look back at the end of the day and you're like, what, what difference did that make? You know, did, did what I, that my service today, did it matter in any way whatsoever? And, and it's hard to see it in the day-to-day -day reality. So it's really important if you're going to live a life of service, it's important to begin with the end in mind. It's important to begin with the end in mind. And when we look at Jesus, that's what we see happening. 
Jesus begins his ministry for, by casting this vision for life in the kingdom of God. The time promised by God has come at last, Jesus says. Repent of your sins, follow me, the kingdom of God is near. And then Jesus spends the next three years of his life kind of demonstrating what does life in the kingdom look like, teaching about the kingdom, announcing the good news of the kingdom, inviting people to follow him into a kingdom kind of life. And in Jesus' day, people kind of had questions about that. What, what exactly do you mean by the kingdom of God, Jesus? And uh, in our day, I think we have similar questions. What, what are you actually talking about with the kingdom of God? So Jesus spent a great deal of time painting word pictures, telling stories, parables, trying to help us understand what does he mean by the kingdom of God? Here's a story he tells, Mark uh, chapter 4, kind of in the middle of this chapter. Jesus also said, the kingdom of God is like a farmer who scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, while he's asleep, kind of like a, a Waffle House employee, or awake, the seed sprouts and grows, but he does not understand how it happens. The earth produces the crop on its own. First a leaf blade pushes through, then the heads of wheat are formed, and finally the grain ripens. Now, this is one of my favorite times of the year, uh, not just because it's football season, but because it is harvest season. I, I grew up on a farm almost nothing about farm life appeals to me. But the one thing that I liked growing up on the farm was harvest season. And I have some really great memories. Saturday afternoons in the fall, helping dad bring in the crops from, from the field. And sometimes I'd get to drive the truck and pull a wagon full of grain, or sometimes it was a tractor pulling a, a wagon from the field where it would get filled up to the farm where you would empty it into dryer bins. I don't remember ever driving the combine. I remember riding in the combine. But no matter what, on those Saturdays in the fall, the radio would be tuned into WHO radio because it was Hawkeye game day. So you'd get the pregame show, then you'd get the game, and in the 80s, it was actually kind of fun to listen to Hawkeye games. And then uh, the postgame show, and finally sound off where people who had been drinking way too much all day long would call in to share their wisdom on really what should be going on in the games. Anyway, great memories uh, about Saturday's uh, harvest season uh, growing up. You realize it takes a lot of faith to be a farmer. To put a dead seed in the ground in the spring and to trust that enough rain, enough sunshine, enough whatever it is in the soil that kind of activates the seed to come to life. And four months later, five months later, six months later, there's going to be a harvest. There's, there's going to be a crop. It takes a great deal of faith to be a farmer. Jesus says farmer doesn't even understand how it happens. But it happens. Year after year after year. It happens. The Apostle Paul is talking to a bunch of Christians gathered together in, in a church in a region called Galatia. It's in modern-day Turkey. And Paul's kind of using the same imagery, metaphor, harvest, crop, planting to talk about how to be the church, how to uh, be people who are interested in creating a kingdom kind of culture. Let's read together what Paul writes, Galatians 6, verse 7. On the screen, read it out loud with me. You will always harvest what you plant. One more time. You will always harvest what you plant. And it kind of seems like a no-brainer statement from Paul, right? Duh. Of course we're going to harvest what we plant. So why does Paul put this in here? Why does this matter? Why is this important? Why should we dig into it a little bit? Now, the first question that pops into my mind when I read a, a statement like this is, what am I planting? What are you planting? 
Paul will go on to say, if you're living your life according to the sinful nature, you're going to be planting and harvesting all kinds of things that are not very good for you. But if you're living your life kind of empowered by God's spirit, then God's going to produce a harvest in you, through you, that's really kind of cool and life-giving. What are you planting? What are you planting? Think about your relationships in particular. Relationships at home or at work or school. What about relationships here at this church? What, what kind of seeds are you planting? Seeds of hope or seeds of despair? Uh, seeds of unity, seeds of division? Seeds of love, seeds of hate, seeds of joy, seeds of meh? What are you planting? What are you planting? There's a, a woman, a geobiologist, her name is Hope Jaron, and she's also the author of a book called Lab Girl. Uh, in the book, she writes brilliantly about the science of plant life, uh, but she also, it's kind of a memoir, and so, so she writes stories about how it was that she became a scientist in the first place, and, and she writes about not just the challenges that plants face trying to live on this planet, but also the challenges that human life faces trying to live on this planet. She gets interviewed by PBS NewsHour, and I want you to watch a little bit of this interview. As you watch this, keep the question in the back of your mind. What am I planting? Take a look. I wanted to write a book, and in my field, that's what you do. You get your degree, and you write a lot of papers, and you get a broad view of the field, and you write a textbook, which yeah, changes for other the scientists. way. Yeah, which changes the way it's taught, and the yeah. field goes forward. When I sat down to do that, I couldn't keep my own story out of it. When I really tried to explain what we'd accomplished, I needed to talk about how we accomplished it, and then I needed to talk about all the late nights and special people and strange experiences that. Were Went into that. I, I couldn't keep the two separate. So now you've got a book where it's all entwined. So it begins for your first discovery, or at least seeing science, in your father's lab. Yes. He taught science at a community college, right? Yes. What did you see? My various early memories as a small child were in the laboratory. You know, what it smelled like, what the cement felt like, the hard angles of it, the shiny objects and the interesting things and how they could all be used for something. It's the and natural world, though, the plant world of plant life that ultimately grabbed you. Yes. Why? Oh, it's the biggest question there is. What does it mean to be alive on the planet? And answering that for you and me is one thing, but answering it for a, an organism that's so terribly different than we are and so terribly much more successful and long-lived and, and spectacular that we can't even interview the way you can ask me a question. <laughs> I have to pull it out of its environment and put it in the lab and try to grow it and control it and get and work so hard to just get a small, small window into something so different. You know, I was thinking, because so much of your book is about moving through the world and seeing green, right? Yeah, yeah. Seeing colors around us. And yet most of us, yeah. maybe I should speak for myself, we don't see it every day. Yes. It's right there, but we don't see it. But you used to. You got away from that. I, I think one, another thing I say in the book is that everybody has a tree they remember from being a child. It's very common I meet somebody who remembers looking carefully at a tree and being near it and what it meant to them, etc. And I think one of the only interesting things about me is that I never lost that. I never moved away from it. 
So there's your lunchtime conversation. What, what was the tree that you remember from your childhood? Uh, we lived on a farm and there was a pasture out back and on the other side of the pasture is where the Hummerkhauses lived, my best friend Mike Hummerkhouse, and they had four boys in their family. We had three in ours and one summer we spent the whole summer at a tree kind of halfway between us building a tree house out there, hauling the lumber, you know, it was lumber. Stray wood? Is there such a thing as stray wood? Anyway, um, our, our world, I haven't been back there forever and ever. Our, our world is probably as mobile now as it's ever been in history, right? And people are moving from job to job and, and city to city with increasing uh, rapid rate. And there's a lot that's good and healthy about that, but of course there's a downside to it as well. And one of the downsides of our mobile culture is it's difficult uh, to plant when you're constantly on the move. It's difficult to plant when you're constantly on the move. She writes about it in her book. She says, no risk is more terrifying than that taken by the first root. A lucky root will eventually find water, but its first job is to anchor. Once the first root is extended, the plant will never again enjoy any hope of relocating to a place less cold, less dry, less dangerous. Indeed, it will face frost, drought, and greedy jaws without any possibility of flight. She says, she calls taking root for plants this big gamble. But if you do it, if you put that root down in, particularly she's talking about the root system of trees, those roots can go down 12 meters, 30 meters, 40 meters, and really incredible and powerful things can happen. Uh, the tree's roots are strong enough to break through bedrock. Uh, they can move gallons of water daily for years in a manner much more efficient than any pumping system human technology has been able to come up with. She actually says once a plant takes root, that plant becomes almost indestructible. All sorts of horrible things and destructive things can happen above the surface, but if one of the roots remains intact, that plant can continue to grow and, and become a plant again and again and again. It's true for plants. I think it's also true for human beings. It does take tremendous risk for us to plant ourselves in any relationship, uh, in any community, in a church. But if we take the risk, if we plant ourselves, if, if we get invested in that kind of way, amazing things can happen. You will always harvest what you plant, so what are you planting? And, and maybe another way to ask that question is, uh, how are you investing your time, your energy, your resources, in particular, the relationships of your life. How are you planting your time and energy and resources in the people who matter in your life? I've lived all of my life in Iowa except for the three years I was in seminary. Uh, my seminary was in Portland, Oregon, and so we moved out, my wife Wendy and I, we moved out to Portland knowing, uh, let's go somewhere, we're going to end up in Iowa anyway, it's where all our family is, so let's go somewhere different than Iowa. Well, I worked at a church, it was a Lutheran church plant, so it was a small group of people that got together and decided we want to start a new church, and uh, three of the leaders of that church plant were also professors at the seminary uh, where I was studying. One of them was my buddy Dan. If you've been around Hope for a while, you, you've heard me talk about my buddy Dan. Well, several months after I'd been on staff at that church, Dan and I met for coffee, and uh, he crossed the table from me at Starbucks, sipping on our Americanos. He says to me, Scott, will you be my friend? Will you be my friend? Now, uh, we've talked in the past about the state of uh, 
friendships, uh, relational struggles for men in this country, surveys say most men report having 0.8 close friends. In other words, the number one response when we, we ask American adult uh, males, how many close friends do you have? The number one response is zero. Most guys don't have any close friends. So here's Dan, uh, full-grown adult male, asking me another sort of full-grown adult male, taking that risky, vulnerable step, will you be my friend? And it's kind of surprising we're friends given the way I responded. I said, well, sure, I guess. I mean, why not? I'm, I'm going to move back to Iowa after I graduate, but I can be your friend until then. <laughs> I know. And Dan looked at me the way someone with wisdom looks at someone who is lacking wisdom. And, and if we'd been in the South, he probably would have said, bless your heart, you know. <laughs> and then he's a teacher, so he began to teach me. He says, of, of course, the choice is yours, Scott. It's a three-year program to get your Master of Divinity so that you can, you know, move back to Iowa and become a pastor. And you can just kind of skim through the surface those three years. You can do what you need to do, meet the requirements and, and that sort of thing without planting yourself. And if you want to do that, that's a choice you can make. Or you can make the choice of planting yourself here for however long you might be here, however short or long it might be. You can invest relationally with relationships at the seminary, with relationships in your apartment complex, with relationships uh, here at the church where you're working. And if you do that, if you make the decision to plant yourself and invest in those relationships, yes, whenever you move back to Iowa, which why would anyone move back to Iowa after living in Portland, Oregon, but we did, uh, when you move back to Iowa, it will hurt a little more if you've invested relationally. And you just have to ask yourself, is the benefit, are the benefits of those relationships that you would invest in, is that worth more than whatever pain might come, whatever hurt from, from that separation when that time comes? And here we are, 20 years later, whatever, I'm so glad that I invested. That's a relationship that continues to this day that's been a, a real blessing in my life. You will harvest whatever you plant, always. What are you planting? And what is holding you back from planting what God is asking you to plant or from planting where God is asking you to plant? Put some more pictures up on the screen. This is... Uh, student ministry training that happened earlier this week here at Hope. Uh, student ministry is power life for middle school students and ignition for high school students. And, and maybe you're wondering, why, why are we spending so much time talking about student ministry? If that's you, if you're wondering that, I would just encourage you to start paying attention to what's going on in our world. Uh, very, very close to us, locally. I, I haven't read closely what... I just saw a couple of tweets and then talked to somebody last night who is on the staff at Hoover High School, and there were gunshots fired at a high school football game really close to us. And what does that mean for people who attend that school? What does it mean for kids who attend any high school? Middle school students, high school students, it's never been easy. It's not getting any easier to navigate your way through those years. And so we want to have a place in the middle of the week where students can come and feel safe and know they are loved and, and have relationships and not be alone. And so that's why we're focusing in on student ministry. I have two high school students, my wife Wendy and I this year, two high school students and two middle school students. And so I'm really excited and grateful for these teams of people who are willing to invest, not just in my students, but in your students, and not just in our students, but in students who aren't a part of hope, but are a part of this community and who need to know the love of Jesus. 
I'm excited about the team of people that God is building. He introduced you to Pete Smith earlier today, our new uh, youth and family director. We got Boz and Ashley who are helping out in, in student ministry as well. And, and I, was, I was thinking about this question, what are you planting? I couldn't help but think about Ashley. I moved to Ankeny in 2006, and Hope Ankeny was just kind of getting started, and we did not have student ministry when, when we started. We had enough volunteer uh, power to pull off a worship service and maybe the Alpha course and children's ministry. And everything else, we said, just go to West Des Moines for that. So student ministry was in West Des Moines that first year. After the first year, a bunch of people got excited about, let's try having student ministry here, and so we did. We had 15 7th and 8th graders. Ashley was a 7th grader. and We didn't have a building. We were uh, worshiping at that time in a school, and so we met in the basement of Kevin and Sherry Stick's home, the 15 of us. Mike and Linda Phipps were the confirmation advisors, and it was great. And we had no idea, we had no idea that any of those kids would ever be interested in working at a church or in full-time ministry, but that's what Ashley's doing. She's working here for us part-time while she's going to seminary studying to become a pastor so that, you know, in a couple of years you can kick me out, I can retire, and Ashley will take over and then watch what God will do. So um, we're planting seeds, planting seeds, planting seeds, and now we're starting to see the harvest that comes as a result of that. Uh, Ashley's thinking about full-time ministry. There are other uh, students who are in that first group who are a part of this church now as adults, uh, some of them married, volunteering and serving uh, here, and some of them are doing that wherever they live, wherever they've you know, been planted in the church that they are a part of there. You will always harvest what you plant. What are you planting? And God says, when you plant, he will produce a harvest. 30, 60, 100 times what was planted. We had 15 Power Life students that first year. Uh, this year, we're praying for 300 Power Life students to come on Wednesday nights. We're praying for between 100 and 200 high school students to come and be a part of what God's doing here. God is providing the increase. Our job is to plant and to water and make sure everybody feels loved. What are you planting? What's preventing you from planting? Sometimes the, the things that prevent us from planting, uh, we're just tired it's hard work. We get worn out. It's exhausting. And so Paul encourages the church in Galatia around this idea. Let's read this together, Galatians 6, verse 9. Read it out loud with me. Let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. If we don't give up. Uh, this year, uh, Dartmouth College accepted less than 9% of the more than 22,000 applications for admission that they received. Another way of saying that is uh, more than 20,000 applications received the dreaded we are sorry to inform you email. Now, there's a woman named Rebecca Sabsky. She was the dean of admission at Dartmouth for uh, 15 years. And a year ago, she wrote an opinion piece in the New York Times just about the process of sorting through applications to Ivy League schools. Here's part of what she wrote. Every year, I'd read over 2,000 college applications from students all over the world. These applicants were always intellectually curious and talented. They climbed mountains, had extracurricular clubs, and developed new technologies. They're the next generation's leaders. Their accomplishments stack up quickly. The problem is that in a deluge of promising candidates, many remarkable students become indistinguishable from one another, at least on paper. It is incredibly difficult to choose whom to admit. 
Yet in the chaos of SAT scores, extracurriculars, and recommendations, one quality is always irresistible in a candidate, kindness. It's a trait that would be hard to pinpoint on applications, even if colleges ask the right questions. E every so often, though, it can't help shining through. Now, if you're like me, you're wondering, how does kindness shine through in a college application? So she tells the story of one student. Uh, he went to a large public high school in New England, and his resume was outstanding, just like probably all the resumes that come in, uh, uh, people applying to Ivy League schools. He had the uh, high test scores, and his class rank was right where it needed to be. He had all the extracurricular activities and uh, glowing recommendations from all of his teachers, speaking of his talent in the classroom. But none of that is particularly what caught the attention of Rebecca Sabsky. Instead, she, she focused in on one particular letter of recommendation, which came from the head janitor of this boy's high school. Here's how she writes about it. The custodian wrote that he was compelled to support this student's candidacy because of his thoughtfulness. This young man was the only person in the school who knew the names of every member of the janitorial staff. He turned off lights in empty rooms, consistently thanked hallway monitors each morning, and tidied up after his peers, even if no one was watching. This student, the custodian wrote, had a refreshing respect for every person at the school, regardless of position popularity, or clout. And Rebecca Sabsky concludes it this way. Over 15 years and 30,000 applications in my admissions career, I had never seen a recommendation from a school custodian. It gave us a window into the student's life in the moments when nothing counted. And she puts the word counted in quotation marks. That student was admitted by unanimous vote of the admissions committee. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? The moments... Uh, nothing counted. It's the reason she puts it in quotation marks because there is no such thing as a moment that does not count. Every moment counts. Every moment is an opportunity for doing good. And so Paul says, let's not get tired of doing what is good because we'll reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. And so I just want to encourage you. Uh, this room is filled with people who want to live lives of service, who want to give themselves away for the sake of all sorts of things that are bigger than, than who we are, including the ministry of this church. And it's, it's hard to do that. One of the benefits of serving at a church like Hope is you get to serve a lot of, alongside a lot of really cool and talented people. But yes, it is exhausting. And yes, there are times when things do not go the way we want them to go. And yes, God is faithful. He who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. I had the opportunity to meet uh, on Thursday this week with a couple faculty members from Luther Seminary. And I got to tell you, most of the time when I get to visit with faculty members from seminaries, it is not something that I necessarily look forward to. But this was actually a very life-giving conversation. We talked for about two hours. They're, they're part of a, a task force at the seminary charged with how do we make connections with churches so that as we think about what's going to be happening in, in church world 10 years from now, uh, 30 years, 50 years from now, we want to begin with the end in mind. 
How, how can we bring about renewal? How can we help churches develop leaders and pastors who, who lead churches where growth is happening and impact is happening and a kingdom culture is starting to form? And that's the kind of stuff that gets me excited. That's the kind of church that I want to be a part of. And I'm excited to see what, what God is going to do through that growing kind of relationship. It's rally weekend. College football has started we got to have a clip about football, don't we? I know not everybody likes football, but uh, this, this is a television show. So if it's not football for you, it's a, a TV show. It's called Friday Night Lights. It was a book first about high school football in Texas. They turned it into a movie and then uh, eventually turned it into a TV show. Coach Taylor coaches the high school team of the mythical uh, Dillon Panthers, and they are expected to compete for the state championship. But the first game of the season, their star quarterback, Jason Street, gets injured Somehow they rally together and overcome these obstacles and they make it somehow to the state championship game. First half, things are not going the way they want it to go. And so at halftime, they get a pep talk from Coach Taylor. Take a look. Jason Street went down the first game of the season. Everybody wrote us off. Everybody. And yet here we are at the championship game. 40,000 people out there have also written us off. There are a few out there who do still believe in you. If you'll never give up on you. You go back out on the field, those are the people I want in your minds. Those are the people I want in your hearts. Every man at some point in his life is going to lose a battle. He's going to fight and he's going to lose. But what makes him a man is that in the midst of that battle, he does not lose himself. This game is not over. This battle is not over. So let's hear it one more time, together. Clear eyes, full hearts. Can't lose. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Um, I want to pray for the volunteers and the staff as we get ready to close uh, our service today. If, if you're a staff member or a volunteer serving in any capacity here at Hope, would you stand up so we can pray for you? I know, you love to serve behind the scenes. I'm asking you to stand up in front of people. You can do it. It'll be great. Uh, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for uh, the volunteers at this church who serve in so many different ways, so many different uh, skill sets, and uh, all of them are indispensable. Uh, we can't be the church that you want us to be without any of uh, these people. And so uh, we thank you and we ask, Lord, that you would give them clear eyes. Jesus says one of the things that happens in the kingdom of God is uh, blind receive their sight. And it happens in uh, physical ways, but also in spiritual ways. So we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see the need and to meet the need, uh, that you would help us uh, just connect with people in, in, in ways that advance uh, your kingdom here on earth. We also pray that you would give uh, the staff and volunteers full hearts. Uh, sometimes... Um, 
sometimes the gas tank can run on empty, and that's not good for us or for the church. And so we ask that you would continually uh, be filling us up with your love and your grace, that that would be what empowers us uh, and empowers our service. And we ask, Lord, that you would uh, bring about a victory through all of that, a victory for your kingdom, a victory for people who are lost to be found, for those who are hurting to be healed, and, and for those who are alone to get connected in community. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, use this church to be a beacon of light for this uh, communities that we are a part of. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.